You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Shalom. This is On Principle Challenges in Jewish Education, and I'm here with uh, President Professor Dr. Zev Elif uh, of Gratz College. And uh, Rabbi Elif, thank you so much for talking to us. You know, I thought about you specifically as we approach Hanukkah, especially as you are a, uh, a maven, a historian of American Jewish history. Uh, talk to us a little bit about how Hanukkah uh, sort of it waxed and waned, I guess. At one time, in, especially in the earlier part of the 20th century, in mid-20th century, that Hanukkah got pushed into the forefront um, uh, and, and sort of, in a way, not only by the uh, Gentile culture, but also in the Jewish culture, becoming for, for a whole generation of Jews, the prime holiday with which they could uh, feel their own and say, yeah, this is what we have. How did that how did that occur? Because we know it's a minor. Right, it's an interesting question. No, it's a, it's a very interesting question. Thanks for having me on again. And much of my comments are going to be informed by a really wonderful book by a colleague, Diane Ashton, Hanukkah in America, a history it came out a couple of years ago, a really wonderful book. Um, but I think that the, the prism, right, the lens that you have to look at it is what's so special about holidays? Jews or otherwise, holidays are a very easy framework, or I say easy, but a very convenient framework to make meaning of our lives, right? Think about the Pesach Seder, think about Rosh Hashanah. The ritual and the halacha really allow us to do that, of course, but togetherness, time off, even in our own time, forget about historically, sociologically, the present, holidays have a way of framing for us an opportunity, the phrase that I like to use, make meaning, meaning-making moments in our lives. Hanukkah emerges, you know, after, in some sense, after Purim, right? Purim, already in the 1860s, 1870s, with Purim balls and masquerade culture, that's probably the very first moment. Of course, Pesach, but Hanukkah is actually a latecomer, and you have to go to the 19th century. And When we talk about the 19th century, usually we're talking about immigration, and you and I are often talking about the immigration of German Jews, but here I'm going to talk about Germans. German culture migrates Christmas to the United States in the mid-19th century. Before then, it was mostly a carnival culture with Catholics didn't much care. They cared for Christmas, but it wasn't that centerpiece of the time. Calvinist Protestantism uh, also didn't elevate Christmas to the high station it is today in Christian American culture. It was really the Germans who transformed it in earnest in the post-Civil War period from a day of merriment, thinking about alcohol and all sorts of almost a car- French carnival culture, to a family togetherness one which I think to many people who are listening to this is quite late, but it's only then does Santa Claus and gift giving really emerge in popular American culture. So why Hanukkah? Obviously the dates line up pretty conveniently, but Hanukkah um, is both helpful and challenging to the rabbinate in America. 
in the, again, in that second half of the 19th century. On the one hand, it is wonderful to get young people involved and their parents involved. So there are pageants and uh, Max Lilienthal, who is, starts off as an Orthodox rabbi in New York. By the time he arrives in Cincinnati, he is a reform proponent. And Isaac Mayer Weiss, also in Cincinnati, they are leveraging Hanukkah not for the lights, not, not at all. And Penina Moisey, I should add, as a lay person, she writes uh, a hymn. Uh, she changes uh, Ma'ot Sora a bit, but it's Lilienthal and others who, uh, Rack of Ages, and I'm getting ahead of myself a bit. But all this is to say is that Hanukkah provides a really interesting moment for young children and their young parents to somehow come in and make meaning of the Jewish year. What is the challenge? The challenge, particularly in reform circles, is that Hanukkah is also a time of nationalism. What's the punchline of Hanukkah? The rededication of the temple. What's the punchline of Hanukkah? Sovereignty in Israel. Historically, okay, fine, it wasn't complete sovereignty, of course, but that was anathema to the American Jewish experience of the time. At that moment, it was about being good Americans. So it was a, it was very surgical how the American Jewish leadership, particularly the nascent rabbinate, had to pull some areas of Hanukkah, the idea of energy, the idea of, of, of a minority overcoming the challenges in a majority land, how to elevate that component while at the same time trying to demote other ideas of nationalism, which in, in that moment, American Jews, and that was in the liturgy and the reform liturgy of downplaying or eliminating altogether the return to uh, Eretz Yisrael and other places. And that was a, that was a very intentional. Um, and, and to move that along, Hanukkah becomes that really interesting um, crucible to make meaning. So it's, it, it finds its way into the immigrant experience of uh, how do you deal with a government that you do not know in the 1920s and 1930s. And it's really until the 1950s with the specter, as they view it, of assimilation to all types of Jews, reform, conservative, certainly the Orthodox, are looking at Hanukkah and saying, my God, what have we done? Uh, this is not a moment for assimilation. This is not a moment to purchase some sort of Hanukkah ornament and place on a Christmas tree. Uh, we have to combat assimilation through pushing up Hanukkah in American Jewish life. And, and this, of course, um, you know, you, as you say, it, it parallels the transformation of what Christmas was going through. Um, and, 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 I, and is it possible that one of the reasons that, uh, you know, th- this crisis was occurring was because Christmas, Christmas and Hanukkah were melding together in, in many people's minds? There was gift giving. There was a certain level of family. It, 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 they were shaped again by the same sort of American ethos. Remember, by the in the first couple of decades of 20th century, was a movement to create the five day work week. So all of a sudden, there was leisure time, even for a middle class, maybe even for a working class. So the idea that you could take off was a chidush nifla. 
in, in many ways. Um, and, and so that same spirit of what a holiday ought to be. That's not dictated by that Christmas doesn't influence Hanukkah. I don't think that's so. I think that's too easy of a solution. It is the American impulse of the 20th century, the move to the suburbs in the 1940s and 50s, that impulse to embrace leisure and family togetherness. It's those impulses, those forces, which drive both Christmas and Hanukkah. And also remember, recall that in the 20th century, truly before the so-called day school movement of the 1940s to the 1960s, in which uh, enrollment in the number of schools spiked tremendously. Uh, uh, Christmas is ubiquitous in the public school. Uh, you made uh, Christmas tree ashtrays if you were in the third grade out of uh, clay or in a kiln or with paper mache. Well, not, not an ashtray with paper mache. That would be quite dangerous. Um, and There's famous have- stories about Rabbonim even who were raised in that period having to take part in Christmas pageants that were part of the public school, um, I wouldn't call it the curriculum, but it was expected for even a public school to put on a Christmas pageant at that time. Right, and certainly um, rabbis like David Phillipson, a reform leader, but an American Jewish leader, goes to court to try to remove uh, Christmas from the public school curriculum. In fact, the Jewish agencies, the American Jewish Congress, the American Jewish Committee are working mightily to create better separations between church and state. So many American Jews, Orthodox, doesn't matter what they are, they're Klal Gadol, the the 14th principle of faith is that there should be a separation of church and state. And that makes it altogether very difficult to embrace some sort of Hanukkah in the public square. And yet they do it because Another principle of faith is endogamy, is Jewish continuity. Uh, And a solution is, well, if they're going to mount their Christmas trees, you better display your minonas. And that discomfiture is overcome by a responsibility to leverage Hanukkah for the sake of Jewish identity and Jewish continuity. And those terms loom large in the post-war era. You, you, you know, you, you indicated before, Seven, you're, you're obviously opening this up and giving it a, a great amount of perspective and obviously a lot of different forces. What I find surprising in what you're saying is that in the 1950s, there was a dis, a, 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 the reformer having a problem with how Hanukkah was happening in America as well. Uh, and what was their, what were they worried about? Was it, it wasn't the same things that were bothering the 19th century reform, because I think by the 1950s, there was already a... Uh, Absolutely, ideas of nationalism, <laughs> ideas of lighting, those had gone away. By the 1930s, you know, my teacher, Jonathan Sarna, has argued, and Michael Meyer, another great mentor of mine, have argued that there was a full conversion, nearly, of reform Judaism to Zionism. Right. So what was what was bothering them? I mean, it, it would seem Hanukkah is perfect for them because it doesn't have the heavy um, mystical and um, sort of primitive rituals that Sukkot and Pesach have, where they have to sort of like be the fealty to this strange of not eating leaven. It, 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 you know, Chazal themselves created such a halal in Hanukkah that it seems like it, it seems like the reform would swim in it 
I'm surprised that you're because saying that they I, had a problem if, with if it. If the if if Protestant America was going to embrace its December holiday in a certain way, then Jews can do that the same way. And the public nature of December holidays provided a, a clear unease to American Jewish leaders. How can we, after working so hard to create the five-day work week, for example, which obviously, uh, maybe not so obviously, tries to parallel Sunday with Saturday to unburden that inconvenience. And they have worked so hard to, uh, to, to leverage the establishment clause uh, there shouldn't be an established religion in America. That's what the establishment clause is. Um, how can we then take everything that we have worked so hard to eradicate in the public square and then use that holiday? And it really comes to a fore by the 1980s with a court case in Allegheny County in Pittsburgh. We can get to that. Yeah. But it takes a long time to ramp up the chutzpah, so to speak. I mean that tongue-in-cheek. Uh, yeah those two forces, how do we overcome that insistence of a separation of church and state? If America is different, if America, American Jewish experience is exceptional, which there's a lot of literature on that. Rachel Gordon, a colleague of mine, has written a fantastic article about where that came from. But if America is different, if we are safer here, and again, I'm not saying Jews were, um, but um, it's because of that separation of church and state it's the Bill of Rights. And then how can we then use Hanukkah? And everybody agrees about this. But, you know, it's interesting, Zeb, that the um, for why wasn't there libertarians and others sort of like free thinkers outside of Judaism? You know, why weren't they sort of complaining about the the White House Christmas tree lighting, the Christmas events that were occurring in a sort of in the national space? It would seem even if there were no Jews in America, there should have been Americans who were saying, why, why is this country raising the Christian flag? Um, isn't it supposed to be uh, basically a, a, a democratic free place where religion could be practiced, but not necessarily well, promoted? And put- I think legal historians will tell you that it took a long time into the mid 20th century until establishment clause cases were looked at more on the national federal level, mostly it was like state by state. Um, there was an understanding that the presidency was a, um, a different type of space. And certainly even in, look at Ad Hayong, uh, Thanksgiving calls by the White House talk about praying in churches. Um, I think it was, it might've been Clinton or Bush. I think it was Bush, uh, the second George W. Bush, who added churches. Now it's mosques too. Um, that rhetoric, um, they didn't want to touch that, I think. Um, but it, t- it does take some time. But of course, that has changed, particularly for the Orthodox community. You know, there were, uh, in the 1960s, 1970s, there were Orthodox rabbis who were very much opposed to using federal funds for day schools, whether it be busing or otherwise, because we can't, that's Kilayim, you can't mix that. Uh, now I think the Orthodox community by and large has moved very differently. And this is one of the great political separations between the Orthodox and the conservative and reform is um, that separation of church and state and the blurring of it. Uh, that's why if you look at who are the partners in amicus briefs uh, in the Orthodox fold, it's not really the reform group, it's Catholic. 
It's other more what I've called tradition bound faiths who are in better alignment politically with Orthodox Jews. That's why yeah. you look at uh, yeah. voting patterns. You right. see that as well. Right. But, you know, that, that seems to, and again, this is your uh, area, but I, it would seem coming from a little bit of knowledge of the Orthodox world, I think that being consistent um, in terms of a, uh, a mindset of how the separation of church and state should work is less important than making sure that we get the monies to keep our gigantic schools going because of all the expenses that are involved in running running these day schools. So they'll jump on and, and what, and they'll and jump and on whatever bandwagon they can. And even if it means well, well, like, isn't there going to be an intrusion of, of, of the government? No, but you know what? We can get money this way. And therefore we'll play, we'll dance with whatever partner is able to take us, you know, to the ball. And I think that's really what it's about. I think the sort of political crudeness of the almighty dollar. Um, yes. That jibes with a, a, a when identity politics watch over American sensibilities in the 70s and 80s. Um, before then, and I'm not saying this was universal, but the majority of Orthodox leaders said, no, ad con. Um, there is a moment that we, there's a, a certain line that we cannot trespass beyond and Church state was a was a major issue. It's hard to understand it now because I think you're right. I think the sensibilities are let's uh, you know for the sake of Jewish education, let's find fund it, funding and our political principles be damned. Um, but not so before the '70s and '80s. You know the I know you you know you hinted to um, the famous case where uh, uh, Justice Alito now Justice Alito um, you know. I guess achieve prominence, and, and we're talking about the Chabad um, case of uh, having a menorah in the public square. But before that, I think there's that period that I grew up in um, in the '60s and '70s, where there was sort of a uh, the beginning of the backlash uh, against the uh, Christianizing of Christianizing of, of Hanukkah. Um, you know, you, you talked about how gift giving became common. In, in, in by through in the end of the nineteenth century, um, d- from your studies of what people were saying, was there ever a, um, a a sense of trying to limit the gift giving of Hanukkah? Because I grew up, it was understood that you were going to get Hanukkah presents. Uh, I got it from my European relatives and my parents as well. Um, from from when, when you're reading between the lines or under the lines, are you seeing that 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 people are are, are are bothered by this, uh, that this is like, what's going on here? Uh, it's interesting. You don't see that in the literature. So when Rabbi Schneer Cutler emerges at an Aguda convention in the 1970s and rails against the commercialization, the materialism of Orthodox Jews, particularly his yeshiva Orthodox right camp, he um, identifies bar mitzvahs, weddings, um, but not uh, not Hanukkah. If you take a look at the uh, Medrash says, Medrash says the footnotes every so often. I once went through the entire all five volumes to look at the footnotes specifically. I, uh, I, I was in Kola with Rabbi Weissman. He was someone that I knew very well, the mm-hmm. author of the Medrash says. But go ahead. You, and, in other and, words, that is incredible that a historian like you is using the Medrash says as the indicators of what this, what the zeitgeist of orthodoxy was. Brilliant, but go ahead. Yes, Rabbi, Rabbi Weissman would be very, very happy. I could tell you that. Go ahead. 
the footnotes, which he rails against college. It's the modern day Moloch. Um, uh, materialism was very much on his mind. I don't think ever once the footnotes identify gift giving as problematic. Nowadays, too, you hear about it, but it doesn't rise to the number, you know, public enemy number one mm-hmm. um, in that spirit. Uh, it's, it's interesting why or why not. Um, maybe because it's a controlled moment. Um, I know that I think the Orthodox community has given a lot of thought to its um, it, it, its uh, impulse. I, I can tell you just without any scientific or uh, in any sort of scientific way, when we speak to other people from the Haredi Orthodox world, a good percentage of them raise their eyebrows when we talk about, oh, we have to get gifts for our kids for Hanukkah. It's almost like, hmm, you're, you're still doing that? You do that? Like, it's, it's almost like they're, they're, so I think it's there. I think they're, I think in the- No, I'm not saying it's not there. I, I, I think now the typical Lakewood Mishpocha or Mansi Mishpocha, um, the kids grow up probably getting Hanukkah gelt more, but I think gift giving- the bitcoins, I think, yeah, bit, bit chocolate bitcoins, maybe. But Hanukkah itself, the, I think the gift giving has sort of subsided it, a bit. Yeah, look, we're still going to do it, uh, but I, I think that it, it, in some ways it was it was pointed to in some circles as, oh, you see what it is? You, you're just copying what the Christians are doing, and it therefore, could be. no, no it, there definitely is a whispering of it, but it never uh, it never emerged as public enemy number one in um, examples of over-materialistic uh, proclivities in the Orthodox community. Right. But, but yes, but the parallels are, are obviously there. But I would, again, I would say not because one comes from the other, but because they are both wrapped around a, a, a commercialism that goes on in America in the 20th century. Yeah, no. So, you know, obviously, you know, the elephant in the room uh, today in the year 2021, of course, is how Chabad has transformed yeah. this holiday. Now, you, Rebzev, uh, you've written about Chabad in a number of articles. Um, I'm sure you could trace this. The inception. Number one, I once wrote about the Chabadization of the um, of American Jewish life. It's on my academia page. It's yes. Away, my most downloaded article. Yes, it's, it's it's phenomenally interesting to me. Um, yeah. So the first there's a machlok at Aposkin, whether or not the first giant menorah was in Philadelphia, where I am now, or in San Francisco, likely San Francisco <laughs> a year earlier in 1975, 1975, it may have been 1976, and a reform rabbi in his bulletin in the Bay Area calls it Hanukkah caroling. Um, there's a famous letter that uh, um, the heads of the reform movement, uh, Glazer, writes to the Lubavitcher Rebbe, imploring him, please tell your disciples. This is also this is in the 70s, also in the early 80s, maybe the early 80s, um, to please uh, a cease and desist order. The Lubavitcher Rebbe says, I would have agreed to, you, except we're being so successful. We're so successful in spreading uh, Jewish wisdom and Jewish spirit. We're not going to stop now. And so there is this movement. Even though it was, you know, it, it was unprecedented and it really has very, um, I wouldn't say 
a small backing from traditional sources, but it was definitely something that wasn't done. It was something that was not done in Europe. It wasn't done in America beforehand. And it was almost the justification that the Chabadskers uh, did after the fact. Well, yes, maybe it is like Hadlaka Beisach Knesset. Maybe there is a both like... And also not, not lost in some of the conversation is the fact that the Chabad menorah looks very different than the usual menorah candelabra, say that's on the seal of the state of Israel. Um, and so they've also, you know, Machlok had shown him, so to speak, <laughs> about it. And they've taken on it and they've changed the image of it. In other words, you're saying not only the, the invention of putting the menorah in every public space and, and, and creating a, a, a huge event out of it and pushing and it everywhere, but, but, but they, actually branded, they actually branded their menorah that they all have to look, they all have to look this way. It looks very different. It's, it's more angular. So, yeah. um, so what happens? What happens is, is that the ACLU uh, takes Chabad in Pittsburgh in Allegheny County to court. And uh, I should say, you know, uh, I'm a big Baltimore Ravens fan, but here uh, I'm not going after Pittsburgh because of the Steelers. Um, is um, This is a major court case. We have the depositions and it's the irony of ironies is that you have the reform rabbis offering testimony that Hanukkah is a religious moment, that reciting a bracha is a religious moment and you have the Chabad leadership not the rabbi, but the local ones in Pittsburgh are trying to turn down the volume on the religious implications of Hanukkah. And it is. And, and to argue that the menorah is a secular symbol, right? Well, it's very Talmudic, right? Is that the court case eventually says that a crash, that a nativity scene of Jesus is, yeah, I understand. is a religious thing. A right. Christmas tree is for, is a wintertime celebration and a Hanukkah menorah. So there's, there's a, a bifurcation of the ruling in the court case. And the menorah falls into the Christmas tree category, not a nativity scene. Um, and this is does that, does that make again as, as speaking as yeshiva guys? Does that make any sense whatsoever? No, it, it, yeah. I mean, an, can anybody say that something that was supposed to be a dogma, something that was in the base Amikdosh, is some Mikhail a secular and, and even, even the mitzvah that was asked for people to light in their homes or in their windows that that somehow is some sort of secular it's, it's quite idea? Peculiar. It's quite, it's, it's a very strange stance in the reform. It's not lost on the reformers at that time saying, well, are you kidding me? We're the Mahmirim? <laughs> they say, now this is also happening again, as Chabad is challenging conservative reform for young families, they're offering discounted uh, early childhood bar you can come and have your kids bar mitzvah in a Chabad house for free. You don't need to be a member. So there are a lot of forces at play that are happening from the 60s, 70s, now in the 80s. Um, there are many court cases. There still are some court cases going on about what exactly represents a public square. Um, and the fact that you had the first lighting with Jimmy Carter. Jimmy Carter comes out of his self-imposed um, uh, exile. Uh uh, he doesn't make a public appearance because what's going on in Iran, the first time he comes out in the late 70s is to light a Hanukkah, is a big deal. And every single president of the United States has taken part in a menorah lighting celebration since 
then. And so, and this is like the, 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 the Pesach Seder at the White House, it becomes ingrained and meshed within the American experience and the Jewish contribution, so to speak, to that. Um, and, uh, but uh, and it's also a reminder of how good Chabad and its leadership is with understanding the dynamics of American life, right? Regardless, you talk about as a yeshiva man, that's true. Absolutely. I think that if you looked at, if you had, if you had whited out the names and depositions, or who is the Chabad, who is the Orthodox ordained rabbi, and who is the reform, you would think, you would intuitively think it would have been flipped. Um, but let's not underestimate the political machinations of Chabad in understanding how to be successful in America. Uh, and, and that's really that article that I referred to is how the rest of us, Orthodox reform or otherwise, have learned from Chabad. Of the, I have argued that the most powerful um, figure in American Jewish life is the Chabad Rebetzin. Um, and I'm not um, speaking too hyperbolically there, I don't think. Um, it's, it's, what, what, do you mean, what do you mean by that? She is the entry point. Uh, she is the, usually they invest a lot in her, uh, in her wardrobe, in her wig, in her shaitel. It's usually very expensive. The Chabad Rebetzin is socialized to um, look, uh, always dress up. Um, I see. The the I, I, um, she is usually better secularly educated than her husband. She runs the day school. She is a partner in the Chabad house. Uh, she's usually loquacious, smart. Um, not, I mean, there are probably some not so smart. It's like they're smart and not so smart. Everybody's, um, but the Chabad right, rabbits I, looms large in the organization of Chabad. Right, and, and that a, of course, there's a kinas for Chabad rabbitsons. Sure, sure. The kinas, the kinas of the female shluchim, and, and you also have the, um, you know, again, this, this dovetails, of course, with the Rebbe's. And this has already been, uh, there's been a number of academic papers about this, how the Rebbe really changed course and, and created a whole new opening for women to learn yes, uh, the academic absolutely. the academic opportunities for them, pushing them. And, and that it, spirit it, is carried on, exactly right. And and, and I think you're right. Uh, you know, you, the type of qualms that Mishpacha magazine and these other magazines have are featuring women and, and, and featuring images of women, pictures of women, Chabad threw that to the wind. They had women out there uh, doing their own videos and, and 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 things on the internet. They had no problem with putting women into the public. As sphere. idiosyncratic as it is, Chabad gets America perhaps better than any other group. I would argue in American Jewish life. So so you're so you're saying really, although uh, it's almost like the ends justifies the means. The there fact is, is pragmatism. yeah, there's a the, pragmatism. The fact is that probably if you would get the Rebbe himself, you know, in his Ayoma MS to talk about what he really believes about Hanukkah and its importance for the Welt, he'd say, look, if he was able to, uh, and he and his minions and the people that are behind Chabad and, and, and pushing have been able to bring people closer to Shmir Samitzos, what does it make a difference whether there's any precedent? for the actions that they're taking. At the end of the day, more people know uh, and more Jews are reached. And there's a, perhaps even as you said, uh, an affinity or sympathy for Jewish causes through these public menorah lightings. Is that- Yeah, it's amazing. It's amazing how much there, even if uh, there are people who snicker, if there are people who get really wrangled up by it, um, 
it's just, it's, it's fascinating to take a step back and understand, well, what are the forces culturally, politically, socially, halakhically that are happening? This is great. Do, do you think that, and I know we look at Chabad and say, well, look what they're doing. Do you think that that has, uh, you know, after, now that it's become almost um, a given that the Chabad mentality is there, has that trickled down to the rest of Judaism? Has the rest of Judaism sort of followed Chabad in terms of their perception of Hanukkah, you think? I think to some extent or another, I know Lincoln Square Synagogue and in Riverdale with uh, uh, with HIR, they've toyed around with the idea of giant menorahs. Um, I, I think leveraging Hanukkah as a beacon um, um, wasn't started by Chabad, but Chabad is certainly up the ante in what its capacity is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. I, would so, say that, I would say that's so. That, that we've seen that, that maybe others can use Hanukkah in a similar ways. Well, Rabbi Zev, you've definitely given us from uh, you know, Thanks the, for having the, me. perspective. Thanks a lot for, uh, and, and I guess I should wish you. Uh, Diane Ashton's book, I'll just double down on this. It's just a terrific book, uh, Hanukkah in America. Uh, so much of, uh, it's, it's her wisdom that has informed so much of this conversation. Well, you, you definitely channeled it very well in, in, into this cup of oil. Take care. We'll take you there. Be well. Bye bye. Bye bye. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.